Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. It's a Bitcoin Podcast. The only one that's making your money in the So This is your first time listening to the Bitcoin podcast. I apologize to you because your life um, has been measurably worse until this moment. And it's about to get better. Uh, I I don't know. Um, we never introduced like why people should be listening to us. Isn't that like a podcast 101 kind of thing? Maybe we should make a new theme song and have Gibbs explain who we are. <laughs> Yeah. Just um, make it part of the intro because I'm not talking. I'm not trying to do that every episode. Yeah. At this at this point, you guys should be listening to us because um hell, we've been in the crypto for very long. Corey actually literally works in crypto on a daily basis. Um yeah, he is he could be considered a blockchain engineer. No? Is that the yeah, stupid sure. term? That's fine. I don't know. They're all, they're all stupid terms for until five years from now when we have real specializations. <laughs> and I am, I don't know, people, I guess if you were a layman, you'd call me an, a crypto expert. In fact, I get called that all the time. I, I wouldn't call myself that just because, well, I know a lot more than the average Joe. Um but there's no experts in the field that's only been around for 10 years, I don't think. Or maybe that's a bit arrogant. There are now. To make I think I think it's reasonably I, I would consider myself an expert in the field. Okay. Like if I compare well, my level of knowledge and understanding to like and I had to put it somewhere on the whole range of knowledgeable people in this in the space, I'm really high up there. So just based on that, I would consider myself an expert. Now, saying yourself, calling yourself an expert in a very young field is like has to be taken with a grain of salt because the field changes, and if you don't keep up with it, then you could be you can be left behind very quickly. As opposed to like you're an being an expert, yeah. But like if you're an expert in like a really old field, then like that expertise lasts a lot longer because the field doesn't change as much potentially depending on the field. Right. But like mm -hmm. experts in Bitcoin back in 2011 who coast to the expertise that don't keep up are obsolete at this point. Yeah. And so like, that's, that's what I mean by that. So like, you know, whenever you hear from quote unquote experts in this field, take it with a grain of salt. Because they may they may have been experts earlier and haven't kept up or like specialized and lost track of other developments or are just writing off the coattails of what their previous expertise was. You know, there's a lot of like 
I don't know. It's it's hard to say, but I'm an expert. But I don't know everything, as no expert does. So I would call you an expert, Corey. <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> in a world. Yeah, yeah. Of, I guess uh, I got speaking of expertise, um I'm trying to every episode explain some concept, some some thing mm-hmm. that happens in this space that doesn't have a very good understanding. Um, and to give you a better intuition of like how all this stuff kind of works, how it fits together, uh, and like maybe how to think and reason about it. And I asked the Slack. Um, so if you would like to participate in this or give me hints on things you'd like to know, you need to be in the Slack because that's yep, where I'm going to ask people. Slack. Everybody's going to ask Slack. <laughs> Slack is where it's going down. That's where you need to be. Okay. Um, we're gonna act, we're gonna try to get you guys more involved in the community. So if you want to be a part of this shit, all right, then you that's get what ask happens. Maybe Twitter. I we, we might answer Twitter, but Slack is where Hell, it needs to be. Yeah. I can't stand Twitter, but I know it's important to be there. But I don't like it. But anyway, <laughs> see, we're we're in the Slack. That's where that's where we're at. Anyway, uh, yesterday, uh, Mash Pat, the handle Mash Pat. Asked me, um, I always wanted to know how does the Bitcoin network determine time for the transaction timestamps without a trusted third party? Right. So um, often. That's a great question, actually. It probably stems from uh, we were talking about uh, computer, the computer clock. Yeah. Um, on what the header. You were talking ahead. about the computer time on what the headers or what the header. Uh, and there was some confusion about kind of how this stuff works, where the time comes from, how do you agree upon it if there's no third-party service that tells you. And uh, more often than not, the Bitcoin network is sometimes called the timestamp server. Actually, it's called that directly in the white paper, as you talked about in the in the in what the header. Mm-hmm. So I got that's that's the question. How do you do that? How do you how do you how is it a timestamp server if there's no one telling you what the time is? Um, and to give a little bit of background here, um, a block in Bitcoin is produced every 10 minutes on average through the proof of work mining algorithm. That's kind of common knowledge. That's a general overview, but like when the block producer, so the person who submits a block, who solves the, the, the proof of work, um, difficulty for that time, time slot submits a block with a specific timestamp on it. And that's and that's going to be that local computer's timestamp. So like they say, like, all right, I solved it. Um, here's the block. Here's the time at which I solved this block. Or when I created when I when I created this block. And that's going to be based on that computer's local time, which they have quite a bit of uh like say over like what that number could be. They can falsify it if they wanted to, right? Or their computer may be out of sync with the rest of the computers in the network. Um, so they, they submit a time, they submit a block with a specific, with whatever their local timestamp is. Um, typically, uh, a computer on the internet syncs its time through the NTP network time protocol, which is just a a network of computers keeping track of time. And whenever you want to know what time it is, you query these servers 
and that gives you the time back based on what your you know current geolocation is. Or you can set it yourself if you want to. But most of the time, most operating systems sync with NTP servers. So they're all pretty good, but you have uh, you have a modicum of control over um, what your computer to time says it is. And to kind of, uh, so you know, uh, a lot of services on the internet will not work if your time is off by a specific about uh, by a certain amount of threshold time, right? So if your time is really wrong, um, you may not be able to access websites because SSL certs won't work, mm-hmm. things like that, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, it, it, it's, it's, if an average computer typically has a pretty good time, but it's manipulable. So, how does the network agree about um, a block's timestamp? Uh, just to be sure, just vote, to, like, so like. On average, also because proof of work is a statistical process, mm-hmm. um, it's not guaranteed that something happens every 10 minutes. It can happen uh, in milliseconds or it can happen in hours. But on average, over a period of blocks, uh, the average block time is 10 minutes because the hashing function is a random process. And so when you're, what you're doing when you're solving proof of work is randomly guessing at a hash to see if it matches some criteria, which is it needs a specific amount of zeros in front of the, uh, at the front of the hash. The more zeros, the more time it takes, the more guesses you need. And so you may guess yep. the first time and get it, but that's probably like, statistically unlikely. What? So let's slow that down a little bit just so people understand like, the 10 minutes thing and it's just being an average yeah. and then sometimes you can have a block in like a minute hell you can have a block in 30 seconds sometimes even faster but then the next block might be two hours that doesn't happen very often that it's that out of whack but it can happen because it's just a statistical process like it can it's and it will hard. happen that's important to note right it's not so statistically unlikely that it won't ever happen. It can happen and it will happen and it does happen. And that's because if you're just, if you're guessing at something, let's just look at like a dartboard, right? Um, If you, if you think about a dartboard, you have to throw, you have to throw darts at the dartboard and it's it's all sectioned up. You can all picture it in your head. Um, And say that you're like, you're so bad at darts that you throwing Darts basically means you're going to hit somewhere random on the whole board at any given time. You can, you can't aim, but you can hit the board. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's just it's just random. So you like you don't know where it's going to hit. But like if you throw enough darts, you're going to hit the bullseye a few times. It's just it's just less likely because that area is so small compared to the rest of the dartboard, right? That's but true. on average, you're going to hit each part with the uh, respective percentage of the volume of, of the whole circle or on. And when so you get that fucking bullseye, you get that Bitcoin, baby. Yeah. So that's basically what's kind of happening. People are randomly guessing at stuff and they get the answer. And, but like your first dart could hit the bullseye or it may take you 4,000 darts. It doesn't matter. It just, it's a random distribution. And the larger the dartboard, and the smaller mm-hmm. the target, the less likely it's going to happen. So what you're doing when you're changing the Bitcoin difficulty is you're changing the size of the dartboard. You're either changing the size mm-hmm. of the dartboard or you're changing the size of the part you have to hit. Either way, you're less likely to hit it by randomly throwing things at it. 
Yep. And let me preach to you a little bit more, audience. Those dart throws are called hashes. Am I right? Yeah. So I perform a there hash, that's a dart throw. And that's like throwing a dart. And if it hits the target that I'm looking for, I can say, oh, I won. I can submit a block. And it's really easy for the whole, the whole world is trying to hit the exact same dartboard. Whoever's hashing or performing mining on the Bitcoin network is all throwing darts at the exact same dartboard. And the first one to hit bullseye is the, is the one that produces the block. And so you can see it, it can happen at any time on average, because this is like, because we trust the cryptography and how randomly uniform it is, we know it's, it's statistically likely to happen one out of this many tries. Mm -hmm. And since we know how many, how long it takes to do a hash or throw a dart, we can guess on average how long a block will take. Okay, so cool. We know we have an average on how often blocks get pushed into the network. Now, and we also know that whoever produces that block and submits it to the network as the right one has full control over what timestamp they put in that block. So how do we trust it? Well, there's a few selection criteria or acceptance criteria when um, miners are validating submitted blocks. So like I submit, I, I hit the dart, I hit, I throw a dart, I hit the bullseye, I submit my block with the proof that I hit the bullseye. And so now everyone on the network has to check to make sure that my block is valid and follows all the rules. And there's a few selection rules or acceptance rules required for me to consider it valid, right? So first, my timestamp cannot be more than a few hours in the future compared to my computer's time. Because remember, like, yeah. computer's time is arbitrary. So like, I'm not going to accept that block is valid unless it's uh, at least within two hours in the future of my computer's time. That's a big right. threshold. That is a big threshold. <laughs> so. Go again. And the other one is, so we've gone to the future, right? It's two hours in the future. Cool. Let's go in the past. How far in the past can it be? Um, and it doesn't set a hard limit here. What it does, it says it can't be less than the median of the last 11 blocks timestamps. Bruh. So <laughs> it just can't be too far in the past. Can't be too far in the past. And we'll talk about that part specifically or too far in the future. So computers can't control like uh, future time. It's because, of course, there's, there's, there's no work involved with the timestamps of the future. It's just right. like we're just we just miss it arbitrarily two hours because that's a somewhat of a reasonable threshold. And the past is the is the median. We'll, we're going to like we're going to really detail why it's median here in a second uh, of the last eleven blocks. Now, why median? Uh, because an average can be is, is more manipulable than the median. So the mean you can manipulate more as an attacker than the median. The median is just the middle number. Eleven blocks. It's going to be the sixth block if you line them up all within in time. I take the last 11 blocks, I, I, I line them in time. I don't care what times they are. And I pick the middle number. That's the median of the last 11 blocks. Now, how can I manipulate that number as an attacker? I need to solve six, the past six of the past, uh, six of the past 11 blocks in order to change that number. But if it was the average, 
I have a much easier time manipulating that number just by heavily manipulating a few blocks. All right. Mm. So that kind of gives you uh, it's it's more security around uh, our confidence that an attacker isn't manipulating things with respect to time because it's harder to do. That's it. That's basically mm. it. Over a period of time, that's that's how you that's how you know. And so in reality, a block I mean, the, the average block time is 10 minutes. But the timestamps are usually just around that. So you know that it's happening in lockstep, right? It's happening in 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 order. And over time you can you can have very strong guarantees that it like the the blocks are being put on the end of the chain uh with consistent timing. Sometimes it screws up. But it will continue to go over time. So, like you have variations, but it's not that big of a deal. And it's really, really, really hard to fake timestamps because, uh, based on the selection criteria, like it's not going to have any effect. And there's some other stuff you can do with time warp attacks that uh, uh, you can go into. And there's there's a really good blog, as always, by Jameson Lop about this stuff called uh, Bitcoin Timestamp Security. It's on his it's on his uh, blog which we'll put in the show notes. Make a note of that, please. Okay. That's it. That's basically it. And Ethereum operates in a similar way, but there's a few, it's it's a bit different because the block times are so, uh, so much lower. Yeah. And when you, when your computer, when your node, when your miner is the one that wins, you get the coin based transaction, right? And the the coin based transaction is the one that issues new tokens. Yep. Coinbase. So there you go. Um, are you um, just going to selectively talk or make transitions specifically to hit the buttons on your soundboard? Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not, Corey. Maybe I am. <laughs> I'm looking at maybe you. I'm, I'm looking at you thinking as I'm talking. I'm like, how can I transition this into a soundboard button? It would make for a great show, though. I downloaded over 200 sounds yesterday, and I kept... <laughs> D's going to slowly but surely just become a soundboard. Yeah. I, I, got, some, I got some good ones in here. Um, I got our... I got... Um, when everything started to get a little too hot, I got a little bit Go of Ronnie. Go fuck yourself. Go fuck yourself. I like that. <laughs> um, I spent some time yesterday building the sound. And, uh, soundboard. So, yeah, I'm gonna try to push these buttons. Um, but um, yeah, we're, we're gonna go into the interview soon. Um, because we we kind of got into talking with someone who knows computers very well, someone who's literally trying to evolve the computer, evolve the internet. Uh, Dr. Munib Ali with Blockstack. Uh, a company that is directly competing with e- directly com- competing, not competing, but competing with Ethereum in a lot of ways, um, but not in some others. Um, blocks is the cryptocurrency, um, but more importantly, uh, the man is hands down one of the leading experts in distributed systems. No, You're right about He's that. up there. He's a good dude. He's smart. He's up there. So, um, yeah, we hope you enjoyed this week's this week's episode of What the Header. Um, the Bitcoin season wraps up pretty quick. Uh, I think it's 10 episodes and then it's up with the Bitcoin season. So we're on episode two. 
We hope you're enjoying that. We hope you enjoyed hashing it out this week. Um, as you can tell, we're not coming back after the interview. <laughs> so kind of like plugging our stuff. Go join the Slack. All right. When you join the Slack, we'll hear this. So we know. All right. We know someone joined the Slack. And then we're good to go. All right. Um, here it is. Hello, hello, everyone. Uh, you know what time it is. It's it's now time for another one of the Bitcoin podcasts interviews. Um, so we got a guest coming in hot. A uh, very special guest with a very special company, Blockstack. You probably heard of it. I know you heard of it. But this is the CEO, Mr. Muneeb Ali himself. Muneeb, welcome. That's Dr. To the Bitcoin Park. That's Dr. Dio. Oh, my, oh, shit. Oh, my bad. My bad. I didn't know we were rolling like that. Mr. Dr. Muneeb Ali. I'm kidding. Dr. Muneeb Ali, welcome to the show. How you doing? Man? Thank you for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. So we like to, to lead in these shows um, pretty much the same way. And that's like give you the opportunity to introduce yourself to our audience um, you know, how you, how you got into crypto, how it changed your life and how you're now using it to change other lives. Cause that's exactly what's going on at Blockstack. Yeah. So I'm Muneeb. I'm a co-founder of Blockstack and my background is pretty much in computer science. I uh, did a PhD in distributed systems at Princeton university. And that's kind of like where, um, the project started. Um, Think, think of distributed systems as like a broad research area looking into internet protocols, cloud computing, and, you know, large scale systems. And uh, I was just like fascinated by the internet and trying to improve like low level infrastructure and internet protocols. And um, basically, instead of like staying in academia and building prototypes or, you know, asking the National Science Foundation for some money to do research, uh, took this rather unique route where we uh, raised venture capital uh, effectively to do R&D for how to build like a next generation better internet and are very fortunate that some people like Union Square Ventures or Naval Ravikant or Y Combinator, they effectively gave us R&D money, right? So we, we hired a bunch of other computer scientists from Princeton uh, and and that's that's how Blockstack started. So Blockstack is a user-owned internet it, um, it it uses blockchains and that's that's where i discovered the rabbit hole right so we we were actually not starting off in the crypto industry we were solving internet infrastructure problems and discovered blockchains so back in 2013 this is a, i think in some ways makes me a little bit of an og in crypto oh yeah i definitely call you og uh i don't want to dive too deep here but i kind of want to uh Infrastructure and blockchain sucks across the board. Um, How dare you? It does. It's just, it, 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 <laughs> it does. I, I agree. Uh, how, did you find it interesting trying to incorporate, like you incorporated blockchain into an in infrastructure play. You think that like helped you or just did it make your, like your problem scope so much bigger that you didn't anticipate? I think... Um, I would frame it a little bit differently. I think the problems that we were trying to solve were very complex to begin with. And blockchains, or more specifically the Bitcoin blockchain, presented a very elegant solution to those problems. But I think in general, what is generally 
happening in the crypto industry is when we were starting off, people just massively underestimated the complexity of this, right? And I think I think this is something that I actually think our team got right. Like we knew that this is a 10 plus year journey. Like, you know, you look at any complex distributed system. I'll give you an example of actually my colleague who used to sit right next to me at Princeton. He ended up joining uh, the Google infrastructure team and he has been working on Spanner, which is Google's kind of like data backbone, right? So it scales to like hundreds of millions of, uh, of users. And he's been working on that for the past seven years while I've been working on this for the past seven years, right? And the expectation was that, yes, these things are going to take this much time, but I don't think that's the general perception in the industry. So we were a little bit unique that even when we were raising capital or setting expectations with our investors, we were like, this is a 10 plus year journey. It's going to take us like years of R&D. And I think that's what you see a little bit where, um, you know, let, let's uh, look at Ethereum where ETH 2.0 has been taking years of R&D work and people are like, hey, where's Ethereum 2.0? Well, these systems are complex. It's going to take a very long time. And it, there's a little bit of a resetting of expectations that's, that's needed. Mm. So next week, next <laughs> week is what we're looking at. No, um, I mean Corey, you could tell I I switch back and forth between like I I want it now and oh, I'm kind of patient with yeah, the pace of change. It's because there's value in the system, like explicit value. We're talking about digital money or programmable money in a lot of contexts here, and that gets people much more excited about getting it early because they would like. To make, they would like their investments to grow, of course, because they most of the time when people are buying crypto or using crypto, it's for speculative purposes because the tech's not good enough for anything else. And so, like it's it's that that's that kind of puts the impetus, I think, in the community on trying to get things quicker than what the developers can responsibly do. Mm. Yeah, and I think I think. Um, I actually think that the infrastructure will get there. Like that's not the thing that uh, keeps me up. Uh, the thing that keeps me up is, and for some years, it's actually more on the UX side of things and uh, just like broader education side of things. Like it's like this stuff, like this rabbit hole when we discovered like seven years ago, it is like deep and it's rich and we love like exploring it. But all of us, I think we're all advanced users. Like anyone who's in crypto right now or owns any 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 type of crypto assets or, or any apps, we're all advanced users compared to the normal internet. And I think the infrastructure will get there. The bridge between uh, going to the mainstream is what, what uh, concerns me a lot more. Yeah, uh, because the mainstream let me tell you something they are not interacting with the blockchain i think i showed someone etherscan the other day and i think they started drooling like it just it's just it's over it's over mainstream's head um but i kind of want to rewind it back to something you said uh munib um well not something you said but something you do i mean obviously you think the internet is broken if you're not trying to evolve it. So what is so fundamentally broken about the internet that people don't understand that sets you out on this mission to evolve computing and, and build a new internet? Yep. So I think, I think it's a, it's a very interesting thing where if you talk to 
people they almost treat the internet as as a like a gift from aliens or something right like they they don't know how it works they just think it's amazing and people don't think it can ever change right and and the interesting thing is like darpa funded the early internet research like some of the internet founding fathers still happen to be amongst us right like tim berners lee uh winston surf who invented tcp ip uh david clark he's an mit researcher who uh, he, he was the chief protocol architect of the internet in the 80s like imagine like having that job like you're the chief protocol architect and and he's still active like he and all of these people they tend to agree on the shortcomings of the current design right so if you mm-hmm. look at if you look at any computer system like operating system or computer network like it's very natural to build the next version of it right like build the next uh, better version of it whereas the internet i think the issue is that because it got so popular and it's so widespread obviously it's a big challenge to upgrade the core protocols and then get people to migrate over but in some ways like that's the natural thing that should happen here right like all of the early original designers agree that what the shortcomings are and i'll get into what what the broad consensus is that those shortcomings are and we just we just need to upgrade the the existing system right uh, so now, now focusing more on the shortcomings so think of this as um the internet was explicitly designed in a decentralized manner that there shouldn't be kind of like any uh cent- centralized services that you need to rely on like imagine the difference between AOL and the free internet AOL kind of like lost out right like it was a company that was trying to make everyone connect to it whereas the internet was the open decentralized free kind of like space uh but what happened was that there were certain flaws in the design uh, like for example imagine imagine basic things like a username uh or a, a authentication protocol so there's no universal username on the internet right like you have you have to go make an account on facebook another account on you know another website so pretty soon you have like thousands of ids everywhere there's no like universal uh username that just works everywhere like your id card in your in your wallet right like if you just you have it you own it you show it wherever you need to and just like walk into a place where you need to go and similarly like storage uh there's no like universal user owned storage right like imagine that your data is being written with thousands of websites everywhere and then it get gets resold from there and, and people are tracking you everywhere online and showing you ads and what not but the basic problem is that there's no home drive so to speak where everyone's data is like being written back with them right so this 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 almost like a universal home drive that is yours on the internet and and then the the list kind of goes on right so property rights aren't there like there's no no concept of like having your own digital property and this is this is the thing that blockchains change where you can directly own property on, online which is by far i think history would define the difference between web 2 and web 3 as the introduction of property rights and bitcoin did that right and it, it did that with uh with with the form of money but it, it's 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 a property that you directly own and then you can extend that to other types of uh, properties as well would you say that's an identical thing to digital scarcity because that's usually the terminology i use when i try to explain like what the novelty is here it's digital scarcity that's what we have now uh, yeah I, i think it's it's true but you have it without depending on any company right so look at twitter usernames 
like they're scarce, right? Like if someone snagged a username you wanted, but you but you are not relying on a company like Twitter. Trustless, trustless digital scarcity. Yep. To an, to an extent. Distributed trust, digital scarcity. <laughs> I don't know how you want to call it. Let's not get too in the weeds there. Like how do, and that's in that sense, like it's clear you've identified problems. How, what, is, what does Blockstack do to differentiate itself from the, the, the myriad of others trying to probably, make, I don't want to say do redundant work, but solve the same problems? Yep. So I think this is very interesting. So going back into the history again, uh, so Blockstack predates Ethereum. So we started in 2013 officially when we incorporated the company. And I remember seeing the early Ethereum paper. And it was, to me, it was like, man, this thing is not going to work, <laughs> right? Like, just from a, I think, I think the Ethereum community is great and they've done a great job of experimentation and, and kind of like excitement. And even uh, on the capital market side, like, you know, early investors made a lot of money um, and that re-energizes the community. But from a purely technical perspective, uh, if you would show the first Ethereum paper to the distributed systems research community, they'll just laugh it off, right? They're like, hey, this thing can't scale to more than a million users, and which is true. And we, we like, this is public commentary from me and others that, hey, this thing is not going to scale beyond a million users. And we saw that in 2017. And then you, you started seeing pressure build up that, hey, we need ETH 2.0 or all these other uh, projects came in. And, you know, everyone is like, hey, we have uh, X transactions per second and this and that. But if you squint your eyes, they're all effectively trying to build systems very similar to ETH 2.0. It's, it's kind of like different teams trying to go in the same direction, right? And, and I think Vitalik, the, the, the original thing that happened, the original fork in my mind was uh, there's Bitcoin, like amazing technology, amazing innovation. And Vitalik wanted, understood that smart contracts are, are interesting and Web3 is interesting. And wanted to do that on Bitcoin, right? So there are very early discussions on Bitcoin mm -hmm. talk uh, around this. And obviously, Bitcoin uh, core developers are, there's no way we would, you know, compromise the security of Bitcoin by adding uh, a, a fuller smart contract language or let other, what they might call garbage, uh, get registered on the Bitcoin blockchain. Like, I think that they understand the scalability limitations and uh, security implications of having a tight scripting language there. So he was like, okay, I'm going to, make Ethereum and, you know, do our thing there. So I think the problems were real that, yes, there's a need for a smart contract language and um, Web3 somehow needs to anchor to, to blockchains. But the technical design, I would say, is not something that I would have gone down, right? I wouldn't have gone down that road. And let me explain what that road is, right? And I think Vitalik has been very influential in the crypto community. And even these ideas of like sharding for scalability or these, these, these um, different types of like technical ideas, you would see a lot of people following that, right? So everyone's is, is going like, like, hold my beer, I'll give you more shards, right? Like they're not, they're not asking the question that <laughs> is this, is this like, is sharding itself a good idea, right? Or even, even roll back in time and ask yourself like, even is world computer a good idea? Right? I, I actually think it's like one of the worst ideas ever, but let me let me let me get in. So ba basically, what what that design says is there is going to be a world computer, which is kind of like a mainframe, right? Like for 
like forget about the fact that a bunch of nodes are running. Logically, it's a mainframe, right? Because it can only process a single transaction at a time, just like Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but these transactions are meant to be something very, very different from payments, right? The, this entire transactions per second thing actually comes from comparison of Bitcoin with Visa networks, right? They're, they're trying to compare payment networks. Cloud computing doesn't work that way. Like cloud computing, people would laugh at these numbers. Like this is not how you build scalable cloud computing systems. Uh, like uh, so, so imagine the mainframe where um, everyone in the world is trying to connect to the same mainframe, and anything they want to do, you're basically behind other people. You're waiting for your computation to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. So the more people join the mainframe, you know, CryptoKitties is going wild and let's say, you know, a million people now want to do a transaction, you're just basically waiting in line for somebody else's transactions to happen first, right? That model, like you can just take pen and paper and draw it out and you know that this doesn't scale. It's not going to work. The entire world's, like right now, you and I are having a discussion, right? Imagine if we had to wait for the rest of the internet to finish processing whatever they're doing before we can, we can talk to each other. Right, like that that, that mm -hmm. model doesn't work. Uh, so, what works is the, the exact opposite of it, which means that, uh, like the analogy would be desktops, right? Like desktops don't connect to a single mainframe. They're not waiting on, on a single kind of like processor to do finish processing something. Everyone is doing their own stuff on their own computer, and whenever they need to connect with each other, they directly connect with each other. Right now, obviously, we're routing through Google but we're directly connected with each other, right? And this is, a, this is an application. So similarly, if I'm building a, a Twitter-like application, so in the Ethereum world computer view, every tweet is a transaction, right? That's just like mind-boggling from a um, transaction fee perspective, but purely from a scalability perspective, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen on the, on the blockchain there. You should mm. go because I have a lot to go into here. <laughs> I'm thinking still. I'm trying to catch up. Like, okay, so obviously it's not scalable. And if I had to wait in line, I'd just be civil about it, Maneev, quite honestly. I'd just wait for somebody to finish their conversation, and then it would be my turn to use Google Meet. But no, I'm kidding. I would lose my shit. But what you say, Corey? I was going to interrupt you, but keep going. Oh, I, I guess... So why do you believe people are so beholden to these things that are flawed from the jump? Because what I hear from you is that, hey, it's, it's all cool and dandy, but none of this stuff could ever hope to work the way yeah. it's designed. So I think, I think this is the area where over the years I've kind of like learned to be um, like more diplomatic. And it's, it's basically, think of it this way that, you know, Vitalik is extremely intelligent, right? I think uh, like different people have different types of intelligence, right? I think he's extremely intelligent because he's, he's a little bit like a polymath, right? Like he knows uh, about a lot of different domains, right? And he can talk about these things and he, he talks in a complex way. But Vitalik is not a distributed systems computer scientist, right? Like he was, he was like 19, 20 year old when he, when he came up with these initial designs. Distributed systems is a rich research area. There's 30 years of kind of like, you know, research that has happened before. 
or there is a there is like imagine like I got ten years of training under uh, people who have written books on distributed systems, right? And that type of training, I haven't seen anyone in the world who became an expert to design such systems without going through such training, right? Like that just doesn't happen. Like even no, regardless of like how intelligent you, you are, uh, so we have we have discovered like all sorts of interesting things where you know some some I think it was like a year ago where there was a lot of hype about um, Casper uh, solving Ethereum scalability and some paper came out about Casper CBC. And, you know, we will get keep getting pulled into these discussions that, look, you know, they've solved the scalability problems and um, they have some proofs in their paper. And we finally got pulled in and me plus two other uh, uh, colleagues from Princeton, we read that paper. And effectively, I think that this review is online. Uh, what we... They, then we wrote a public review about it, right? And our public review was kind of like, hey, you got the definitions wrong for Byzantine fault tolerance, right? Like, like this would be like someone wrote a physics paper and got the definition of gravity wrong. And then there are proofs in it, right? So there's there's lots of complexity. <laughs> and, 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 and anyone who reads it, like 99% of the people in crypto are not going to understand anything that's in that paper. Right? That's the reality. They're like, oh, yep, lots of equations, and you know, solve something. And kind of and the proofs there correct by construction. <laughs> right, right. So and and I think some people in that group actually took that feedback very seriously. They they met me at some events later on. They were like, hey, well, thanks a lot for taking the time to review the paper. We actually hired some distributed systems people um, to iterate over the protocol. Like, thank you. And I think that's a good approach. There were other people, I'm not going to name them, they were publicly kind of like going around and saying, well, I use my own definition of, of, of BFT, right? Like, mm -hmm. like, wait, what? Like, you're going to change the textbook definition of what these concepts are because you got it wrong in the paper? Hmm. Well, let me ask you so, Yeah, that sounds... I would say that there's a world outside of crypto most of the sophisticated researchers and engineers, they live in that world. And they're skeptical of crypto. They don't want to touch the crypto industry because of the baggage that it comes with it. And and the a lot of I think I think the situation is getting better in the last year or two with some very sophisticated people like Silvio Micali of Algorand and, and others, like they've actually started working in crypto, which is an amazing sign. But this was not the case for the first like five, six years of, of my experience in, in this industry. No, absolutely not. I, I can I can attest to that from my background. I find a lot of the things novel and, and interesting, but like where we stand today, if I, I try to say this many times on this podcast, what we call crypto in five years is not what it looks like today. In ten years. It's not going to look like what it was in five years. Like there's going to be some drastic changes to the fundamentals of how this stuff works before it works the way we think it should. Now, what has happened is a kind of a Cambrian explosion of like interest in an interesting set of ideals, like how to build, how to think about building new systems with prioritizing different types of things like trust or value transfer, or like D used to tell me this uh, back in college is like, I, I, I worked, I have a background in high performance computing, uh, working on clusters. And it, it was, it was, I guess, 
common knowledge for me, and I assumed it from others, that when you use systems like these, you sit in a queue, and everything that you do has a cost. And so you're paying for computation, which isn't something most people think about in the, in the majority of the world of like, uh, of, of using computers. It's just no one, no one associates a cost with the computation that's happening. But that's intrinsic to how you use blockchain networks or anything that's like universal consensus. And I think what we've started is a community that's now thinking about these things more regularly. And so there, and that's why you're starting to see more interest from the academic community of distributed systems because it's gotten to a threshold of legitimacy where it's worth their time. And but for those, like you said, for the first couple of years, it just mm-hmm. wasn't there yet. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. So I think basically, and again, I think a lot of credit goes to Ethereum. Like now I'm going to take the other side of it, right? Like why some of the things that they did well, uh, well, maybe, maybe in, in the grand scheme of things, like the right way of going about it, right? So it was a little bit like, let's focus on the community. Let's focus on the culture of experimentation. And let's focus on the culture of like just pushing something out there and fixing problems on the go, right? And I think it has some benefits. Like there's a reason why, you know, Ethereum has a, a very large uh, community, has inspired so many people. It's just like there's a part of me that wished because, because of the uh, influence that ended up happening on like downstream influence on other projects and their thinking. I just wish that, you know, they, they would have taken a different road like five years ago. Right? Like just directed all that energy in a direction where it's not an uphill battle. Like right now, like people are deep in the um, in the complexities of like sharding and basically making layer one even more complex. Like it's like imagine you're trying to solve problems introduced by complexity by introducing more complexity. And and part of me wants to just like shake these everyone and be like, hey, <laughs> like you know, like. Try to think about what's going on. Like, how can you solve complexity by introducing more complexity? Right? Like, there's a there's a different path available. Let's talk to you a little bit about our sponsor of the show this week, Status. And today, I want to call out uh, the many listeners who are building DApps on Ethereum to tell you how to get your DApp in the hands of all the Status App users. Status App itself is a mobile Web three, lets you chat, browse, and transact. There's a lot of cool things about the Status App. Right now, let's talk about the DApp Explorer. Status App uses DAP.PS, that's referred to as DAPs, as an on-ramp to use Ethereum DAPs on mobile. Maybe you've heard about DeFi, want to check out KyberSwap or DeFi Zap. We'll get some s and and F, load it up in your status wallet, and use DAP.PS, D-A-P.PS, to get DeFi on mobile. Take your decentralized, permissionless finance with you. Already, we're seeing tons of excitement around mobile DAPs in Web3. If you've got a DAP, Head to DAP.PS, check it out, follow the instructions for staking, and get your DAP ranked and featured, or email stake at DAP.PS for more information. What's really neat about the Status App DAP Explorer is that it automatically creates a social channel for your DAP. So you've got a place where Status App users can find and use your DAP, but also you've got the built-in private and secure chat functionality to build a community, do Q&A, FAQ, support, or even meme building. What's that you say? You're not a DAP developer? Why not? Status has a suite of developer tools to get you started building, testing, and deploying Web3 dApps with Embark.io. You know, you see projects that raised a bunch of money in their ICO in 2017, and then nothing. Some crappy wallet, maybe some marketing partnerships, but Status is shipping consumer products, dev tools, and fixing Ethereum and basic peer-to-peer networking and communication protocols. The team is legit. I'm on it. Decentralized and open source. 
Check out everything they're up to at thestatusnetwork.com or start with the status app at statusim slash git. That's status.im slash G-E-T. Back to the show. And let me let me talk a little bit about what, what that path is, right? So, um, so I, I fundamentally believe that you cannot do the type of transactions needed for Web3 at the blockchain layer. Like this is not what blockchains are meant for, right? Think of, think of blockchains as a low bandwidth, secure channel, right? And over that low bandwidth channel, um, you want to establish trust, right? So, so for example, I would want to discover your public key from that secure channel and then talk to you on a normal high bandwidth channel, right? So this is, this is, this is kind of like, I don't want my tweets as transactions on the blockchain, but I want to discover your username and your public key from the blockchain and then go and read all your tweets because your tweets are signed by your keys, right? So I can verify that this is the right person and, and so on, right? So think of blockchains as anchor points, as, as bootstrapping trust. So different services uh, basically anchor their security in, in blockchain and blockchain sees like a fraction, a fraction of the traffic that is needed for Web3, right? And then I'll take this design a little bit further. It's not just that, you know, the only a subset, like a small fraction of things need to be transactional on, on the blockchain. Uh, like imagine Facebook likes. Facebook gets like, I don't want to get the number wrong, but in the order of like three to four billion likes a day, right? These can't be transactions on a blockchain. Like you, no blockchain can do four billion transactions just to cover like likes in a single app on the internet. Like, like that's just insanity. It's not going to happen. So, so then the, then when, when we looked at the design, we kept thinking about security of blockchains. And th there's this like very interesting trade-off where I think Bitcoin designers and core developers, they deserve a lot of credit because they have dealt with, with all this criticism, right? Like imagine the forks that have happened with Bitcoin where people were like, let's increase the block size or, you know, I want to put more transactions in it. Like they have, they've kind of like resisted all of this and they've, they've resisted, uh, adding more complexity to the base layer. And I think, I think they, they really made the right decisions. Uh, and over there, we were like, we want to figure out a way to anchor to the security of Bitcoin, right? Like we, we've actually seen firsthand problems with smaller blockchains or even merge mining. I've, we can go into the details if you want, but in general, what we figured out is somehow can we interconnect blockchain so imagine like the stacks blockchain so specifically i mean the stacks 2.0 blockchain uh, that, that's going live soon and over there it kind of like extends bitcoin while benefiting from the security of bitcoin right so so stacks chain has a full smart contract language it's called clarity and which is like very precise and and and, and you can predict what a program can do but all the assets that are being defined there, so you can do thousands of transactions on that chain, basically result in a single hash per block on the Bitcoin chain, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and that way, I think the visual in your mind should be that like more Web3 related stuff happens on the Stacks blockchain, but it anchors back to the mothership, right? So, so we, we believe in Bitcoin and we believe in Bitcoin being a reserve currency. and you're 
anchoring this use case, the entire use case of like smart contracts, DeFi, Web3 back to the mothership. And there's a very interesting interplay between STX, which gets consumed in smart contracts or when you're doing registrations uh, for usernames, domain names, other things, and and Bitcoin, right? So uh, the SACS holders can earn Bitcoin for participating in consensus, right? So it's a very interesting interplay between the reserve currency and the currency used on the Web3 chain, right? And miners are actually using uh, Bitcoin to participate in mining. So it's a little bit like, instead of us starting a new proof of work chain, like a, imagine like a smaller island that has less hash power and we are, we are making miners like do burn electricity. We're saying that you go from electricity to a proof of work token only once, then in a more energy efficient way, you use Bitcoin to help start other blockchains, right? So it's it's like, only Bitcoin, if, if this is the way the world ends up going, then electricity to Bitcoin will be one step. Bitcoin is this big kind of like secure base for everything else. And then Bitcoin is a thing through which other types of functionality like Web3 is getting enabled on these interconnected chains. And that's 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 the work that we've been doing. And we're super excited about actually our Stacks 2.0 testnet is literally going live tomorrow. And right before this podcast, someone said, uh, like one of our core engineers, he said he mined the first transaction. People were going crazy in our our, our, uh, community. So how do all those transactions fit into one hash? Like, you got to like, you got to explain that to me because that just blew my world open. Yep. So I think it's basically, you know, um, imagine you could create a hash out of any data. Um, the, the size actually doesn't really matter that much. So uh, imagine like a large file versus a small file. You could create a hash out of a small file or you could create a hash out of a big file, right? So mm-hmm. they are, or another way to think about this is um, uh, you had a great example of digital scarcity or real estate. Let's call it real estate, right? Um, imagine Bitcoin is, is like Manhattan. Like things are really expensive there and you want to be very careful about what you... Uh, what what you use that scarce land for, right? And and uh, the SACS chain has a, has a little bit more capacity, right? So it's kind of like um, you we are using space on Bitcoin very very carefully, right? So so one block of the SACS chain uh, can have thousands of transactions, but results in only a single hash on the on the Bitcoin chain. This is similar to what I think most people conceptually thought about um, layer two solutions on F2 or F, Ethereum, right? Uh, between yep. Plasma, Optimistic Rollups, Serial Knowledge, like whatever the soup du jour is for layer two solutions in Ethereum, this is the concept. You root your trust in a limited bandwidth uh, network that has a specific scarcity to it, right? And a security model. So like the proof of work that generates tokens on Bitcoin or Ethereum gives you a certain level of security of that asset of the Bitcoin or Ethereum. You then take that somewhere else and do a bunch of stuff in a more efficient manner. And then when you need to, you know, tie back into that trusted anchor, you, you can all summarize it really, really nicely using some cryptography 
into a, into a single hash, which can be proven later. And that's what and that's the kind of what you're doing. But are you limiting yourself to the Bitcoin blockchain? Why why choose that as your main uh, trust anchor? Yep. So I think uh, first of all, yes. I think uh, when these layer two solutions started coming around in and around Ethereum, I was I was actually. Uh, very hopeful. I thought one of them would, would take off and, and that that's the way that uh, Ethereum scalability can actually get fixed. We, we actually wrote a paper about this in, back in 2016, introducing these layer two um, type solutions. And I, I don't know the details of what happened, but I don't think the layer two solutions took off. And I think they are now more in the sharding type layer one scalability. I'm happy to have or, very long conversations about that with you if you'd like. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think I think in general, like what we're doing, uh, I would say it's similar to layer two, but it's not layer two. Like, let me highlight some different differences. The differences are that there is a separate blockchain. Like, it's conceptually fully separate. Blocks propagate, and leader election and all of that is very separate. That's why I use the word interconnected. The only thing we're interconnecting with Bitcoin for, I can I can get a little bit more technical here. So basically what happens is that miners on our chain uh, see the state on both blockchains, the base kind of like cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and stacks, right? Everybody else, all the developers, all the users. We Last year, we got like around 350 applications on the network, right? So people are using these things and, and it's very exciting. They don't need to be concerned with Bitcoin. Right. They don't. They don't need to do anything with the Bitcoin chain. To to them, Stacks is just a separate blockchain, and they use it. Miners uh, are actually participating in consensus by sending Bitcoin transactions. Right? They look like normal Bitcoin transactions, but they're being used for leader election. So one of them gets uh, becomes a leader, gets to write the next Stacks block, and and there's a very very interesting um, economic thing that we were able to do where. Uh, the bitcoins that the miners are sending, they're actually going to stacks holders. So it's a it's a it's a, a variation of staking. Like in staking, you earn the same uh, crypto asset. Over here, people are locking up their their stacks and earning bitcoin on uh, there, and they're doing useful work in the consensus algorithm. I won't go into the details. So I think this is a just think of this as this is like a third category of mining mechanism. It's not proof of work. It's not proof of stake. We call it uh, a proof transfer, POX. But it's not it's not layer two, but I can see how uh, it can come across as similar to layer two. And now let me get into why Bitcoin, right? Like I think the design, and we have, we have uh, carefully designed it in a way that it is um, agnostic to what chain you're interconnecting to, uh, but it needs to be proof of work based. And in the worst case scenario, you know, disaster like scenario, you could. Uh, fall back to native uh, proof of work, but like I do think we are taking a bet here that Bitcoin is uh, so secure, has network effects. Everyone who discovers crypto, basically Bitcoin is the first thing that they discover, and then they discover like everything else around it. And um, anchoring to the security of Bitcoin uh, is 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 our way of envisioning Web three. We we think that. Bitcoin would become like a, almost like, you know, the narrow waste of the internet where anything like imagine, uh, because it's about ownership and imagine like 10 years from now, what's the probability of like smaller chains being alive, but the probability of Bitcoin being alive is a lot higher. So if you're talking about ownership, right, you're talking about internet ownership, you want to own a domain name or username or gaming asset or, you know, whatever else, 
you you want to have the surety that this asset will be alive 10, 10 years from now. And that's why we're anchoring the Bitcoin because I, we think that the probability of, of uh, ownership information remaining stable and secure uh, and available is a lot more if you anchor to Bitcoin. It's reasonable. Okay. Uh, quick follow-up on that. Uh, proof of work, because, uh, like you said, you rely on proof of work. Is that because you need that um, initial step of transferring or converting external resources is like that inter- of energy into a digital scarcity? Yeah, I think it's a uh, proof of work is one of the key innovations here. Like, uh, I think basically, I know that most of the kind of like new generation um, Web3 projects or DeFi projects that have emerged in the last year or two, they're by default going for proof of stake. And I wonder like how much, again, this has to do with, uh, with Ethereum and Vitalik, right? Like it's like setting a direction and everybody is like, hey, I'll, I'll beat you on your own game, right? Versus first principles thinking that, you know, should we be doing proof of stake or not? Uh, and I am still not comfortable with proof of stake, although like the work that Silvio Micali is doing with Algorand, uh, like that, that is super interesting and, and should dig deeper into it. My main problem with proof of stake is under an attack condition, uh, people can give you like thousands of different histories of the previous uh, blocks, right? It's To me, the main problem is bootstrapping trust, right? Like it yes. is extremely hard for someone to give you thousands of copies that are valid blockchain histories of Bitcoin because it would require an insane amount of computational power to produce those, those different copies even. And so that's, that's why I think that I'm still in the camp. I, I, I think it's possible that there's more innovation in the proof of stake type solutions and um, they get rid of some of these concerns that I have in terms of, uh, it's about initially initial trust and these reorgs type attacks where uh, it is, you need to trust certain information to even bootstrap a node on a, on a proof of stake network. And uh, I worry a lot about attacks where you know, if your network has been taken over and people are just creating like thousands and thousands of fake copies, like how can you tell what, which one is a true copy of, of your chain? Hmm. I think it's bootstrapping trust. That's a very interesting phrase. Um, that, that, that was almost the title of my PhD thesis. And but so I, there are chapters uh, on it, but I think I ended up going for uh, trust to trust design of a new internet because bring, linking it back to the earlier discussion about founding fathers of the internet. So the chief protocol architect, uh, David Clark, he came up with this end-to-end design principle uh, for the internet, and which is basically the same thing. They keep the middle of the network, core of the network, very, very simple. Uh, and all the complexity is with the edges, the nodes, the laptops, the people's connect, right? And the, the network is very simple. And then he updated that design principle after seeing a lot of problems with the internet uh, to a trust-to-trust design principle meaning that um, you also shouldn't trust anybody else in the middle of the network, right? So if I am sending you a message on a secure messaging app, we should not trust anyone else in the middle. Like forget about, you know, trusting Facebook or because of WhatsApp or all these other uh, DNS servers and this and that. So, so in some ways, Blockstack is an implementation of the internet in the trust-to-trust manner. 
right? And my thesis is, is basically all around it. And and uh, and when, when I talked to David Clark about it, like he, he did a happy dance. Like when he learned about it, he, he just finished talk. Like imagine like a 60, 70 year old, like really, really well-respected researcher. And he just did a happy dance in a circle when he learned about it. Someone actually went ahead and did all this work. Uh, it's got to give you some, some warm fuzzies there. That's a yeah. <laughs> that's an alkaline to keep under your belt. <laughs> I feel like though, like isn't trust something that is like a lagging? Um, I don't want to say lagging indicator because that's just where my brain's going right now. But you don't know if you can trust something until you've got enough evidence to trust it. Yep. Like, so the, the, the time. Yeah. So I think I think the, this is where. Um, you know, when some people say uh, trust, sometimes what they mean is that you don't need to trust the other party, right? And it's like they use the term trustless. Uh, but I feel like we don't we don't have good terms. Like this conversation no, that we've terrible. just had. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> these conversations that we've had, like, again, connecting it back to the mainstream audience, like, they don't need to know or they shouldn't care about these details, right? Like, I, I want crypto to reach a stage where, you know, things simply just work and people have some way of knowing that, you know, this app is more secure and this other app, the Web2 app, it is not secure, right? And I, I don't want to use that that thing. I'm going to use like the, this Web3 app because mm-hmm. they, they need to understand that, you know, visually or through through their friends that that you know, these apps are different. Like you, uh, you, you have your own ownership here, right? Or you won't be, um, uh, these big tech companies won't be tracking you everywhere on the internet if you use this app. And something like that. It boils back to what you said about the UX nightmare. Like, for example, I don't know, I don't even know when it changed. But I do know, like five years ago, I had to tell people, yeah, if it doesn't say HTTPS, don't go to the website. And they're like, what do you even talking about and i was like the little the you know it's in the url if it says http it's not safe if it says https it is safe and that was so like people didn't even get it and now i look on my browsers and i just see a little lock yes the, like, the green, green, green lock yeah yeah instead of it saying https or http it just has the lock or it doesn't and that's a lot easier for people i'm like hey if it doesn't have a lock don't go to it if it does you're good to go and so blockchain does need more of that but this kind of segues into something, Corey, you said. Something that you, Corey, I think why you fully bought into crypto and understand it is because you've had to actually pay for computation time. You know what it means. Nobody else even thinks they're spending money to use their computers. They probably literally don't. They just use their computers as a part of their life. Um, and so I think a lot of people talk about the adoption curve of new technology. I think a lot of people are familiar with it. It's an S-curve goes up sharp, flattens out. But I think one of the curves that people don't ever actually bring into consideration is like the saturation of knowledge of a new technology. And what I mean by that is, I don't know, there's you know four people in this call. Uh, how many of us know how to fly a plane or know the intricacy of all the mechanics that go into a plane working? I know I don't. Um, I know if my microwave goes out right now, I'm just going to go buy a new microwave because fuck all that. You know, like there's a knowledge saturation that doesn't reach the public. 
And I think the wider that gap is from like 100% of people have knowledge about a thing as simple as a hammer or like 5% of a population have knowledge about a thing as complex as um, a light switch, um, there's a lot of room for bad actors. So as you're talking about trust and bootstrapping trust, uh, taking it outside of the realm of, I guess, networks and network propagation and distributed systems and bringing it into like actual humans, can crypto ever uh, jump that hump of all the trust needed because there's such a huge gap between people like yourself and Corey that do understand and have knowledge about how this stuff works and don't and just look at a flashy app on their cell phone. Yeah, no, I think, I think it's, a, it's, a great, uh, it's a great point and, and, a, and a challenge. I take the lens of just maturity of an industry over here, right? It, like imagine that the, and, and then humans adapt, right? Like for example, if your microwaves were start blowing up for some reason, right? Like people would start looking into like which company you're buying your microwave from, right? Like because there are regulations and there, the industry has matured that it is, um, it is not viable for a business to really exist if their microwaves are blowing up. And I think our crypto industry is a little bit like that, where uh, <laughs> I think like there are projects like where, uh, you know, the whatever the design of their blockchain was, like, like it's not working and, you know, all type of stuff is happening. And the industry is like actually very tolerant of these things, right? Like it's still, it was, it was funny, like the a blockchain is like, I don't know, like down for like 12 days, but the asset is still trading. <laughs> and all, all, like it's it's like a microwave blowing up and, and people are kind of like being fine with it but it, it's I think as an industry I am actually becoming more hopeful because of more sophisticated teams entering the system like for, for example uh, take near protocol uh, as an example like they're they're highly qualified engineers right like I would bet that they can solve some of the scalability challenges of ethereum probably better than the core team Right? And I might get criticized for that point of view, but this this is my point of view. Like, and they are actively working in that ecosystem. So I think the, just the players are getting mature. The uh, regulations are getting mature. Like we didn't get to talk about this, but we did a, a first ever SEC qualified offering um, just last year. Right? Imagine that you know the Securities Exchange Commission has been around since 1933, and for the first time they qualified a crypto asset. Like we figured out all the legal mechanisms, all the accounting stuff, all the work. And I imagine that it was kind of funny that people in crypto have never seen uh, stuff like this before. They're used to like a flashy marketing paper. And we were under like strict restrictions in, in terms of how we were conducting that public offering. And they will come and they want to read the, the, the flashy marketing paper and we'll point them to a 180 page you know, IPO-like disclosure document with risk factors to scare them off. And, and that was like, just seeing their reaction was like really, really uh, interesting. Mm, that's a great point. I, um, it's much different when you, this recently I've had to like venture into reading the documentation around these SBA loans for what's going on in the world with this COVID-19. And I read, um, I don't even know how many pages, but the actual law that was like signed in. And I was like, just where, where did my life go? Like, why am I reading this in my free time? I'm reading the actual law. Uh, it was terrible. So I just want to throw that in there. So I can yeah. imagine anybody that 
I wanted the flashy white paper and you gave them something like that. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't. Yeah, they, there's a special like button that turns off your brain when you see legal language, right? Like, oh yeah. We, we we tried making it simpler and we did a lot of work. I'm very proud of the, of the team in general for like imagine that you know how much um, kind of like information gap there is usually between like what's going on in a project and the public investors. And we had to disclose like every single thing. It's like it's like an IPO filing. Like it's very similar to an IPO filing. Like all the details about the company, about the directors, about ownership, about here are the risk factors that everyone should think about. And I think it reduces information asymmetry, which means that it, it helps mature the market. And um, and and then then obviously there are uh, you know. Concerns with overregulation as well. That regulators are sometimes slow, and they're uh, and that hurts the U.S. markets because regulations are easier outside, and it's it's its own thing. But I think if you if you uh, if you're excited about the future and take these as like temporary hurdles that we just had to get over, same with the infrastructure. Like, there's no doubt in my mind. Give it a couple more year, years. The infrastructure is just going to disappear from discussions because stuff just works. It's in the background. And there are sophisticated players who have figured it out. And same with regulations, right? Like, and, and we want to go on the other side where sophisticated lawyers and players uh, enter the ecosystem and people start doing the right things the, in a more professional way instead of the crazy wild west. Uh, and I, I would like to see like, our industry become more and much more mature that way. Okay. That's so a, no way. Go ahead. Go ahead. Corey. I'd say that's that's it's, we've kind of gone through quite a bit. And wrapping up on time, I wanted to wrap up with you giving us kind of a a a, a look at what's on the horizon with Blockstack. Yeah. So I think as I, as I mentioned that you know we were very explicitly in R and D phase early on, um, and then we moved into building the base infrastructure and slowly started opening up our network. Uh, like imagine like the project has been around for seven years now. And last year is when developers really started uh, building apps that can scale. And those are more like general purpose applications, right? So we have around 400 of them, but they're like things like, uh, like photo sharing or kind of like privacy applications or, or decentralized blogging or decentralized Google Docs and, and even an email service built on top. And these things scale to millions of users today. And I'm extremely proud of our team for doing that work. But the next step is enabling smart contracts and, and basically anchoring entire Web3 to Bitcoin. And that's the Stacks 2.0 launch that is happening like as we speak. The testnet is going live tomorrow. And then within three months or so, we should have a stack to our life. And I think then our attention, like it's a it's a switch. So we move from infrastructure phase to now developer traction and focusing more on getting like you know lots of users on these applications so that people can really start experiencing Web3, right? And uh, I, I, so it's in some ways, like when you think of block stack, think of this as like R&D phase is over years ago and infrastructure phase is about to be over. And I, I'm really excited about what's, what is on the other side of the infrastructure phase. Congratulations. Yeah. So, yeah yep. Thanks a lot. The launch, and I look forward to seeing um, a lot of the on-ramping 
and usability and applications and things that I can do uh, on Blockstack and the Stacks blockchain. So thanks for coming on the show. Uh, we'll certainly be having your back because I have a whoa Nelly. Whoa! Slow down, Corey. That I didn't get. I didn't. I didn't get to a lot. All, mo, the majority of the questions that I have. <laughs> so. Whoa, Nelly, slow down just a second, Corey. We got one thing to ask, uh, Doctor Maneev here. In ten words or less, can you describe Bitcoin? Uh, I think Bitcoin is a reserve currency and a anchor point for the internet. That's nine. That's nine. Congratulations. You've won nothing, but you did <laughs> you did come below the ten words. Um, that's a strong definition. It's also what we haven't gotten. Thanks, yet. sir. No, it's not. I like it though. Um I like it. Yeah, well, and we're happy happy to do a deep dive on some of these technical things in whatever format you guys like. i right. I I love geeking out on these things. Sounds like a hashing it out, out episode. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you very much.